Welcome to Prayer Storm Podcast. We trust that it will be a blessing to you and that it will stir you and equip you to be all God calls you to be. I came into this year kind of really feeling frustrated at a few things. Um, and in kind of our kind of team meetings, you know, I said to my team, I said, you know, I've never really come into a year feeling so frustrated as I have done this year. It's not that I was mad at God. But there was just a real unease and unsettling. And it was a sense that God was doing something, but I couldn't put my finger on it. And when I came across these uh, verses in John 2, it kind of really just put context and a sense of language to what was going on inside of me. Now, you've got to realize, oftentimes in charismatic Pentecostal circles like these, where we cry out to God and pray, and we say, God, we want to see a move of your spirit. Many of you have prayed that, Lord, break out, Lord, move in this nation, Lord, move in this city, Lord, move in my school, Lord, move in my family. We often have a mindset, I don't know about you, but sometimes I do, or I, ha- I have had, a mindset of like God splits open the heavens and takes a bucket full of Holy Spirit and just pours it out. Because actually, he does say that in Joel 2, 28, I will pour out my spirit. So it's like God's just going to open the heaven and pour it out. But actually, that's not a great picture of what God really wants to do. Because in the prayer movement, prophetic movement, we talk about wells of revival. You know, you know, Isaac redug the wells of his father and all that. And we use that to talk about wells of revival. And we go into places like, oh yeah, God moved over here. There's a well of revival here. And oftentimes, we think of the wells of revival as something that's there underneath the ground that we need to dig. But actually, if you think biblically about this, the well of revival is not down underneath the ground. It's actually in you. What does the Bible say? Out of your... Okay, does anyone know the Bible in this room? (laughs) Out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. So the well is not actually under your feet. Now understand the prophetic connotation and I'm not knocking that and never ever going to use that. I'm just trying to say the reality is the well is in you. So it is out of you that God wants to pour out his spirit. So when he says I pour my spirit on all flesh, it's not just him just opening the heavens and pouring out a bucket of Holy Spirit. It's actually from within you and me that Holy Spirit wants to be poured out. Are you hearing me this evening? Because oftentimes when we think that way, we put all the responsibility on God to just do something up there. And we don't realize God is putting responsibility on us. Sometimes our theology concerning the sovereignty of God is actually a direct result of our need to both justify and excuse spiritual impotence. It might get intense in a few moments, just so you know. So we want to put the responsibility on everything else. And don't realize heaven is actually looking at you, looking at me. That the Holy Spirit is in us to break out. And sometimes he's not able to get out because the veil of the flesh is so thick and we are in the way of what he wants to do. So we are called to prepare the way and get out of the way. Are you hearing me today? So with that in mind, let's go to John 2. Um, John 2, the next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine ran out. Everyone say, the wine ran out. Yeah. During the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, they have no wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. 
each could hold about 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars of water. Everyone say, fill the jars of water. Yeah. And when the jars were filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first. But he said, then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best wine until now. Everyone say best wine until now. Yeah, that's an important point. This miracle sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Because um, on time, I'm going to kind of make a few connections here with uh, just a lot of things going on that has been going on in my life over the years. And I feel like it's just building up to this moment where God is preparing me. I'm talking about me now, preparing me for some extraordinary things. So he's actually putting a dissatisfaction in me. And there is a difference between being ungrateful to being in a place where you're dissatisfied. And what I'm trying to say is sometimes there's a fine line between being thankful for what God is doing, yet longing for more manifestations of God's glory. Because you know where you're at, it, there's, there's got to be more than this. Anyone with me there? So the danger sometimes is to step into that place where you're like, there is more than this. And then you decide, you almost disregard or don't appreciate the current move of God you might be seeing around you. But sometimes you can also get to a place where you can get satisfied and get complacent and get okay with what you're seeing. Maybe you're seeing some people get saved. You're seeing some people get healed. Maybe God's blessing your ministry. Maybe your business is growing and things are looking good around you. So you step into a comfortable place and your pursuit settles. So now you don't, you don't really pursue it more, but you don't realize God is actually wanting to release more, but he's not going to release more to someone that is not actually hungry for more. So the fact that I'm feeling dissatisfied and the fact that I'm feeling hungry and the fact that I am not choosing to settle, but I know there's something deep in me that's crying out for more. And when I say more, I don't mean just materialistic more. I don't even mean just a bigger ministry more. I don't mean just bigger, better charismatic meetings with being on TV and more lights and more sounds and everyone knows my name. I'm not talking about that kind of more. I'm talking about something that we're talking about move of God, something that no man can take credit for. There's a cry in me. The fact that that cry is in me tells me God has the answer for that cry because the cry will not exist in me if he wasn't going to answer it. Because the cry is for him. And he, listen, it takes God to love God. You cannot muster up some sort of, you can't just whip yourself into an emotional frenzy and go, yeah, 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 God, and just try to do all this emotional stuff. Listen, it takes God to actually seek God. So when God is stirring my heart to fast, stirring my heart to pray, the enemy is not going to be tempting you to fast and pray. If there's a stirring, even when you're stumbling in the flesh, is a sign that God wants to answer, wants to feed you, wants to encounter you. That's why there's a stirring. So I came into this year feeling very stirred in these areas. Like, God, there is more, there is more, there is more. And certain stories and things I'm not going to go into that way. Just making me so dissatisfied where things were at. And then I came across this passage, and I really felt like God has uh, just given me some insight as to some of the things we're dealing with. When it talks about the wine running out, 
The wine really is a picture of a move of God. Let's think of the wine in this context, a picture of the move of God and a picture of the power of God. We need to see a greater manifestation of the power of God in our generation. And when I say the power of God, I don't just mean the power of God because the man of God says, everyone lift your hands, hallelujah, bless you all, and you all fall on the power of God. And then there's a man of God over here that carries the anointing and you all come and watch the man of God carrying the anointing and pray for you. Now, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the power of God being manifested through you and me. I don't know about you, but I want to see more people get saved and healed. I know that I was at a meeting yesterday, day before yesterday, this weekend, and I'm telling you, God was moving. There were some kids that came forward for prayer to be filled with the Spirit. Honestly, all the kids I laid hands on, kids, like they're in their maybe nine, eight-year-olds, they were all praying in tongues. As we're laying hands on them... <laughs> Maybe there was one or two that didn't pray in tongues before. It was like a four-year-old, three-year-old <laughs> that was just watching and looking like, what's this? But the point is, a call was made saying, if you want to be filled with the Spirit, never pray in tongues before come forward. And all the people that responded, not the adults, it was all kids that responded. Apart from two or three teenagers and all kids. And they were all impacted. So I am seeing God move in certain degrees. But listen, I have not even seen what we read in the book of Acts with my own eyes. Where all were healed. Where in one moment, 3,000 people get. I know we, we have evangelists going out, millions of people get saved, but I'm talking about right here in Manchester. I'm talking about right here in our neighborhood. I mean, you walk past your neighbor and your shadow hits them and they fall out and they get healed. Well, so when was the last time that happened to you? Tell me. Now, if that happened to you last week, you might want to come and lay hands on me after the meeting. <laughs> I am wanting to see more of God move. I know there is more than this. There's got to be more than this. Because Jesus, not Jesus, but the scripture says, one of the prophets, he says, the glory of the latter house will be greater than the former. And what that means is, when you take the book of Acts and the crazy things that happen there, and you combine that with Azusa Street Revival, combine that with Welsh Revival, combine that with Hebrides Revival, combine that with every other move of God you've been impressed by, missionary movement, the John Wesley, the Great Awake, combine that all together. And what that scripture is saying is what is ahead of us is greater than all that combined. The glory of the latter house, in other words, the glory of the church in the days before Jesus returns will be greater than the glory of the church in the book of Acts and the glory of the church in the past. So that tells me our greatest days are ahead of us. I'm going to say that one more time. I said our greatest days are ahead of us as the church, the people of God. If that is true, then there's a demand that heaven is wanting to place on us now. Because look at the lives of the people that God used back then. John Wesley's and even the people in the book of Acts. You know, the way they saw God, there was a certain demand that heaven had on their lives. Now they prayed and sought God. I'm thinking, if what's ahead of us is greater than that, then what kind of demand is everyone wanting to place on us now? Heaven is placing a demand. And for those who are sensitive, I believe it's going to start with a real dissatisfaction. It's like... There's got to be more than this. Yeah, I go to church. Yeah, I've been to a service. Yes, the pastor laid hands on me and even laid his legs on me. But Lord, I've come out the same. And I, I, I've, I've had the goosebumps. I've, I've fallen out. I've, I've done all the spin around and I've, I've done the roll. I've done, Lord, I've done everything, but something still needs to change because I still feel like I'm the same person. But when Peter encountered the Holy Spirit and fire, he was a different person after that encounter. 
See, in the Pentecostal charismatic church, we are settling for tongues. Peter and the early church did not settle for tongues. They were baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire and power. So we get tongues, we're satisfied. They were like, they, didn't, they weren't even promised tongues. They were just promised Holy Spirit fire. So when they got it, they knew they had it because of what happened after they got it. But we get tongues and we say a few Shabbas and Dubas and we're done. I think the evidence of a true baptism of the Holy Spirit is not just tongues. We have to cry out for the fire and the power. And that means we are different people. Before the encounter, you're one way. After the encounter, everyone who sees you, you have to reintroduce yourself to them. Because they actually can't recognize you anymore. Because the encounter changed you. That is my testimony. That's my reality. I've had some encounters that have changed me. Literally like personality transplants. And I know God did something in me. So I'm like, God, if you did that, there's much more I want you to do and I'm believing you want to do. So I'm not going to settle for this. All that to say, there is this celebration we're currently in in the church right now, which I can, we can liken to the day when they had this wedding or the several days they had this wedding. And they're celebrating. Now, they had good wine. The wine they had wasn't bad. The wine they had was good. And it, it was just part of the celebration. It was just part of the way they did things. And, you know, they'd been having the wine for probably a few days. I don't know how long. And all of a sudden, the wine runs, runs out. So Jesus uh, hears his mom, says to him, okay, you know, they run out of wine. The fact that Jesus' mom knew that they ran out of wine tells me Jesus' mom, Jesus's mom must have been close to the organizers of the wedding, or at least must have been close to where the wine was being served from. Are you hearing me today? Because the wine didn't run out and then a public announcement was made. Hey, everybody, we ran out of wine. They did not do that in this wedding, I guarantee you that. Because this is like an embarrassing thing that only a handful of people will know something has gone wrong. So for Jesus' mother to have this information, she must have been close to the source, okay? So now she passes the information to Jesus, and there's a whole other message about he's saying it's not my time. And the fact that he says it's not my time is actually interesting to me. Because, you know, Jesus does what the Father does and all these things, you know. So it actually tells me hunger and expectation has a way of shifting even God's timing. Jesus said, it's not my time. Was he lying? He wasn't lying. Jesus cannot lie. He's God. So if he said, it's not my time, then actually, it wasn't his time. But hunger and expectation shifted the timing of God. My goodness. So when God says, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you, something about your hunger has a way of affecting something in the heart of God that demands a response from heaven. Because the hunger in your heart is a sign that he is going to answer that. The hunger is something that is for him. It's not just a hunger for material. It's hunger for something that only God can satisfy. Why would he discern that hunger and just leave you and don't want to answer you? So I'm telling you, hunger and expectation has a way of shifting the timing of God. So Jesus' mother then goes to the, 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 the servant and says, whatever he says to you, do it. So they go, and they get six water pots. Everyone say six water pots. 
six water pots, and the Bible says this water pots, water pots that are set aside for purification. Now, before I actually come to that, I want to touch on one point very vital to this message and preaching. Jesus' mother was close to the source. The wine runs out. By the end of the wedding, uh, the, what's it? The, the, the water has been turned into wine, and the master of ceremony tastes the wine, and you know what he says? This wine is better than the one that we had before. You've saved the best for last. Like, this is the best wine. So when we talk about the move of God, the healing of the sick, raising of the dead, multitudes getting saved, what they had before was good wine, but what they ended up with, you know, the glory of the latter house would be greater than the former, right? What they ended up with in the end days, so to speak, was best wine. Okay, so they started with what? Good wine. But they ended up with what? Best wine. How many would like to settle with just good wine? I don't know about you, but I don't. When best wine is available, right? Question is, how do you transition from the place of good wine to the place of best wine? The first thing is you need to come to the realization that you've run out. Somebody somewhere in that wedding was close enough to the source to realize that, guys, the wine is gone. It's amazing to me. The fact that the wine was gone did not mean the wedding ended. The fact that the wine was finished did not mean the celebration ended. Welcome to 21st century church. We've got the lights. I love the lights, by the way. We've got the sound. We've got nice, amazing, great communicators. We've got some of the best singers. We can put on church. In fact, even if Holy Spirit doesn't show up, we're going to have a good time. We can do church without the Holy Spirit. So the celebration carries on. But the people that are really close to the source know that it looks good out here. But the reality is we've run out. It's only people that are close to the source that are in a place where they can actually admit that to themselves. But the 21st century church does not want to admit that we have run out of wine. Now, when I say run, I don't mean we're no longer anointed. I'm not saying God is not moving anymore. Remember, I said the wine represents like a move of God. We've got to a place where it's like, yeah, yeah, we, we, we know how to do this. It, we, we can do the two fast, two slow songs, three fast, whatever. We, we know how to almost put God in a box here, so to speak, even though we won't admit that. And we, we know how to preach in a way that moves certain people. We know the messages to release that people want to hear. We almost know how to do this church stuff without the Holy Spirit. And we have to get to a place of realizing we have run out of wine. Yes, we're still anointed. Yes, God is using us and things are happening, but there's a realization that were run out. These people did not end the celebration because the wine had ended, because the wine had finished. And for me, that is just a picture of where we're at as a church right now. God is needing a few people to go, hey, Lord, I think we ran out. You know, when you go to the shopping mall and you see the map in there and it says you are here, God wants us to realize where we are in the spirit realm as far as his move is concerned. Because some people are replacing faith with optimism. So 
We've run out, but we're just going to talk good. Yeah, God is moving. So we, we try to talk ourselves into a, a frenzy of believing our own reports, but not really being a place of facing reality and going, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Three people go say, praise God. Two people go here, praise God. We're thankful for that. But when you get into your room by yourself and it's just your Bible, you and God, can you really face the reality of what's going on in your house? Say, Lord, something is not sitting quite right here. When I see the multitudes on Market Street and Piccadilly Gardens and I walk past and I'm talking to my neighbors and I'm praying for certain things, Lord, something is not quite right. Something doesn't line up in Scripture and my life. Something doesn't line up with, in my life with Scripture. And it's not necessarily that I'm living in sin. It's just something is not quite fitting right here. And it's a realization right now. Now, when they realize they've ran out, that, that positioned them for the miracle to take place. There was, no, there was going to be no miracle without them admitting. Remember the woman at the well? Yeah? The woman at the well, Jesus saw the woman at the well. Jesus had to reveal to her the truth about her. And she then accepted the truth about her before he revealed to her the truth about him. She first had to accept her situation and where she was before he could now break in and bring a revelation of who is. But the 21st century church does not want to accept the reality of where we really are because we've got the great giftings. We've got the great singers. We've got the greatest preachers on the planet. Listen, if great preachers were going to change the world, the world should be changed by now. What the world needs is not another great preacher or another great singer. What the world needs is a move of God. And listen, no gifting can do this. No one man can do this. It is a move of God. Now, yes, God is going to use man, but man has to get to the place where he realizes he can do nothing. He can sing nothing. He can preach nothing. He can mobilize nothing unless heaven breaks in. So they had to hit that place. And then Jesus said to the servants, get the six water pots. Six water pots speaks of six, speaks of number of man, right? So he's talking in a language that's actually prophetic. He's saying, I am going to use man. I'm going to use mankind for the release of this next new wine. Okay? They had to fill the water jars that were empty with water. So first they had to be empty. If we're going to receive more, we have to create space for more. So they were, the, the emptiness is a picture of their hunger. And they had to fill these water pots with water to the brim. Now, these water pots were set aside for purification. Everyone say purification. purification. This is a very, very important point. Because this purification was what the Jews did as part of their cleansing in preparation in their worship. So these water pots were, were almost like uh, 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 consecrated, set apart for the whole idea of purity and holiness. So what the Lord was saying is, I am not going to release the next move of my spirit, the new wine, until, the, until mankind, the people of God, the number six, we come together in a place of purity. The next move is going to come from the foundation of purity and holiness. Okay, now I'm going to go to this next part. Very important. Remember that in the book of uh, Samuel, we, there's some interesting stories in the Bible. If you don't read your Bible, read it. There's some crazy things in there. This is one of them. I think in about 1st or 2nd Samuel 4, somewhere around there, 
you read about the Ark of the Covenant being captured. So uh, uh, if you don't know what the Ark of the Covenant is, the Ark of the Covenant is the single most important furniture in the whole of the Old Testament. So whenever the Ark shows up, it's game over for whoever is against the Ark. <laughs> so if you're in financial hardship and the Ark shows up, breakthrough and prosperity. If you're in a situation where the enemy is beating you up like crazy and the ark shows up, guess what? The battle reverses. Whatever the situation in, whatever the situation you're in is, as soon as the ark shows up, you know it's over, right? So the nation of Israel understood the importance of the ark. So they're going to fight the enemy and they're fighting the enemy. This is in, and let me give the exact reference this is in 1 Samuel 4. They're fighting the enemy, and the enemy, Philistines, are beating them. Thousands are being killed. So they're like, guys, we're losing this battle. You know what? There's only one other thing we need to do right now we haven't done. We need to get the ark into this battlefield right now. I mean, that's a great strategy. So the Bible says they went and got the ark. But the Bible was very careful to mention the people that brought in the ark. Two guys called Hophni and Phineas. Now, if you know anything about your Bible, you know who those people are. Now, I'm going to come to that in a moment. But they brought the ark in to the battlefield. And when the ark arrived on the battlefield, the Bible says the nation of Israel, the army, they shouted so much that the ground shook. That's some charismatic praise right there. I mean, that puts our shout in a few moments ago to a shame. I mean, they shouted, the ground shook, the enemy fell to the ground shake and went, wow. What God has come into their camp. And the enemy starts to testify of God and say, oh, that's the God that slayed the Egyptians. When the enemy starts to testify of your God, something is about to go down. <laughs> because the enemy is like, oh, we are in some big trouble right now because the ark has showed up. They know once the ark shows up, everything shifts. So the enemy, they say to themselves, you know what? We are already, we are already done. How about we just fight like men and just believe for the best? So, okay, let's just fight. Let's just believe for the best. So they kind of summon up courage and they start to fight, fight. And guess what? They didn't just fight. They won the battle. The ark showed up, but yet the people who brought the ark in lost the battle. So now the nation of Israel and a bit of a confused state. Eli, the priest, is at home. The news comes to him that his, his two sons have died. He didn't react. This moment they said the Ark of the Covenant has been captured because the enemy did not just win the battle. They captured the Ark. The moment that he hears the news the Ark has been captured, Eli fell off his chair, broke his neck, and died. Uh, one of the, uh, so the two sons of Eli that died, one of the sons had a wife. She was pregnant. The moment she hears the news about her husband dying, not much happens. But when she hears that the Ark has been captured, she goes into labor. She gives birth to a child. She doesn't name the child after the husband that's just died. She named the child after the fact that the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. I'm trying to say this for you to understand how significant the nation of Israel, how, how, they, how they saw the Ark of God. I mean, how they valued the presence of God. The, the point that the husband dies doesn't really have much of a reaction, but the Ark is captured, and then boom, she goes into labor and names the child Ichabod, glory has departed. They have such a high respect and honor and value for the presence of God. So now we come to this point. How is it that they were able to take the Ark of the Covenant into battle, but still lose the battle? I mean, you must ask yourself that question. I ask myself that question. Well, like I said, the Bible was very careful to tell us who carried the Ark into the battlefield. Hophni and Phineas. Everyone say Hophni and Phineas. 
Yeah, if you know your Bible, you know what I'm about to say to you. Hophni and Phineas, God already talked to Eli about his sons. Hophni and Phineas did such immoral things that it provoked God to real anger. Listen to what they did. They slept with women at the entrance of the temple, okay, and in the sight of people. So imagine you go into church on Sunday morning and the pastor's sons are sleeping women at the entrance of the church. How many understand that's a bit intense? <laughs> okay, so these guys were living in, in wickedness. These are the guys that were carrying the ark into the battlefield. Well, I guess that explains why, the, why they lost the battle. Because... <laughs> It's not about trying to manipulate it's not about trying to manipulate the presence of God to do what you want it to do when you want it to do it how you want it to move. It's actually more important the sh- about the shoulders that the ark of the covenant is resting on. The shoulder the ark is resting on determines what happens when the ark comes in. So it's not just about the ark showing up, it's about the fact that the person carrying the ark, their lifestyle is not aligning with the values of the ark. But somehow, 21st century church, we want the presence of God to show up for us on the platform. Oh Lord, show up for me in the public place. I want the sick to be healed. But what kind of lifestyle is the ark resting on is it is it like the six water pots of purification is the ark being is the ark resting on a shoulder that has the same values of the ark of holiness holiness in the message of purity and holiness these days will not draw a crowd but that's the message that's going to build the end time army of god So what God is saying is, what I'm about to do is going to involve the ark of my presence, but it's not going to be resting on shoulders that are not living right. Okay, so they went and they drew water from the place of holiness and purification, a lifestyle set apart to God, and it was from that place the miraculous took place. Water is a picture of the ordinary. They took the ordinary, and God added his extra to the ordinary. So by the time they got to the other side, you know what they had? Extraordinary miracle. Because God took what they were, and he added his super on their natural. So what they now had was supernatural miracles. But God wasn't going to release that kind of a movement without them being set apart in the place of holiness. Are you hearing me today? So they get to the place of the new wine. Oh my gosh, I didn't realize how far time had gone. I'm going to round up shortly now. <laughs> so they, Jesus gets them to draw the water and as they're serving the water, the water turns into wine. The water turns into wine not in Jesus' hands, but in their hands. God was doing a miracle through them. And the miracle did not, I don't think, I think the Passion Translation makes it clear when the miracle happens. It's almost like the miracle happened as they were serving the water. It was like in that moment, something happens. What got them to the place where they were able to do something that crazy? Because that's kind of a crazy thing to do. What got them to a place where they were able to do something crazy was because they'd heard Jesus' mother say to them, whatever, everyone say whatever. Whatever. Whatever he says to you, do it. When you're in a desperate place for God, you're ready to do whatever. Everyone say whatever. whatever. Say whatever again. Whatever. Yeah. Whatever he says to you, Stacy. Whatever he says to you, Rebecca. 
whatever he says to you in your moment of desperation may be different to what he's going to say to me in my moment of desperation. But the most important thing is that our hearts have to be in a position where we're ready to do whatever he says. Because the problem is we can end up taking formulas from one another and try to just build this kind of religious system and go, okay, well, this is how we're going to find God. Have you noticed in the whole Bible, there is no kind of roadmap to pray in tongues for one hour and then read your Bible for 30 minutes and then wait on God in silence for 15 minutes and then release your request for another five minutes. Have you noticed the Bible does not give you any structure as to how to seek God? Because he wants you to step into that place of whatever. Because when you get hungry and I get hungry, the way it manifests will probably look very different because all I'm up on is, Lord, whatever you say. So God may say to me, wake up at four in the morning and pray for three hours, but God may say to you, wake up at 12 in the middle of the night and pray for two hours and God God may say to the person over there, go on a three-day fast. And God may say to the person over there, go on a 21-day fast. But the fact that God said that to them does not mean saying it to everybody. And you have to be in the place where you're ready to hear what he's saying to you. But if you're not desperate enough, you will not hear his instructions to you. You would want to copy his instructions to somebody else because you, wanna, you don't want to pay the price to listen to what he has to say to you. Because what he has to say to you is about your life. And it's going to sometimes look different to what he's saying to me. Because I am in a desperate place and saying, Lord, whatever you're telling me to do I'm gonna do it it's a unique word and listen whatever also gives us a picture of them being led by the spirit because they were being led by his instructions to them which brings me to the next part of this sermon which I'm gonna kind of round up on now when you look at the story of the Ark of the Covenant when it was captured by the Philistines God struck the Philistines with all kinds of plagues. So they knew we can't keep this ark. We have, to, we have to send it back. So they decided to send the ark back. Remember, the ark went into the battlefield on shoulders of men. When the Philistines sent the ark back, they didn't send it on shoulders. They sent it on a cart. And they sent it on a cart of all these other random things they sent with it. You can read about this again in 1 Samuel 4, 5, 6, around that area but I'm gonna just look at a verse quickly in first chronicles 13 6 to 8 I'm gonna round this up I'm aware of the time and I'm, I'm not trying to rush this but I need to I need to land this point so please just stick with me are you with me yes. okay thank you for staying with me you're gonna be blessed by this because this really for me captures a lot of what we're dealing with in our churches today so David becomes king this is uh, 1 Chronicles 13, 6 to 8. David becomes king and he decides, look, the ark has been returned by the enemy, but somehow the ark has been kept somewhere. And we've not really inquired of the ark since the days of Saul. So he talks to his people and they're like, you know what? We need to get the ark back. How many know that's a good thing? To, that's a good point to make. We need the presence of God back. The people who went before us did not value the presence but we want the presence. So we are going to do what it takes to get the presence back. That's what David says. So they prepare to get the presence back. The, the ark had been away for 20 years. Everyone say 20 years. 20 years. It's a long time. So somehow they'd lost some kind of connection with it. And now their hearts were being stirred. First Chronicles 13 verse 7. And they carried the ark on a new cart. Okay. Now, if you read on in, this, in these uh, verses, 1 Chronicles 13, 
verse 6 to 8, you see that they carry the Ark of the Covenant. They're bringing it back. After it's been gone for over 20 years, they're bringing it back on a new cart. And the Bible specifically says there was dancing. There was celebration. I mean, this was a charismatic meeting going on. Okay, so this was not just some random kind of, you know, choir meeting. They, they, were, they were giving everything they could to God. Now, the Bible specifically says that when the ark was on the cart, listen, they drove it. That is really stirring and convicting to me. Because what they were basically doing is they were bringing the ark in the same way the enemy sent it out. Are you hearing me? The ark was never supposed to be on a cart. But the enemy sent back the ark on the cart. So now they're copying the enemy's methods to bring in the presence. They're copying the way the world does it to bring in the anointing. They're watching Beyonce and watching Alicia Keys and watching everything out there and trying to copy that method to bring in the presence. But I'm telling you, we have got to be a people that got to realize what God wants to do. It cannot be of the world. And the systems of the world will never be able to contain what God wants to do. So God is saying, you cannot just copy the way the enemy did it and try to do it that way and expect that by doing that way, I'm just going to move somehow. They brought the ark on the cart. In other words, they were bringing the presence in in the most convenient way possible for them. So let's find the most convenient way to get the ark in. Well, I guess we just put it on a cart, just like the enemy did. Oh, and because it is on a cart, guess what? It doesn't have to rest on no one's shoulders. When the ark is on a cart and they're driving the ark, they determine the pace of the ark. But when the ark rests on a shoulder... That's carrying the ark. The weight of the ark determines the pace of the people carrying the ark. So now they're driving the ark and driving the presence and trying to get the presence of God to do something the way they want the presence of God to move. And God is like, you can't just drive my presence and get it to do what you want to do and how you want to do. My presence is meant to rest on shoulders. And what that means is the person carrying the presence take personal responsibility. There's some fasting and some prayer that would have to go into the carrying of the presence on my shoulders. So now, the people that are meant to have the presence on their shoulders are driving the ark. They are driving what's supposed to be driving them. They're, 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 they're trying to manipulate the presence for their benefit, as opposed to the presence, for lack of a better word, controlling and manipulating them for his benefit. They're trying to say, Lord, we're going we're gonna to do this over here. Lord, come and, come and bless this event over here. We, Lord, we know that this is what you want. They've not really sought God to find out what he wants. They've just come up with an idea. Lord, come and bless this thing we're about to do right here. As opposed to getting onto God's agenda, they're wanting God to get onto their agenda. Are you hearing me today? <laughs> this is where the 21st century church is. And that's why God did not honor the way they brought the ark in. And 
some guy ends up dying because they were applying the wrong order. And I believe the whole message of the new wine, God wants to bring a complete shift to even the mindset of many leaders in the body of Christ. We have to realize we've run out. Then we have to be in a humble place to be ready to receive whatever he's asking us to do. See, when the ark is resting on your shoulders, it's a picture of being led by the Spirit. In the, they were being led by the Spirit. In the same way with the new wine, when we listen to do whatever he's asking us to do, we're being led by his Spirit. The end result is we end, a place, we end up in a place of supernatural, extraordinary, and the best wine. For the best wine to be released, like we heard in one of our, our prayer times up there, God is creating a new wine skin. And that new wine skin is going to look like nothing we've known before. In fact, it's going to be challenging for many of us. What we're praying for, I don't know about you, but sometimes I don't even have the language to, to, to put into, I don't, have to, I don't know how to articulate what I'm praying for. But I feel like God is shaping me to say, no, the old system, the old order cannot handle this weight. So I need to take some personal responsibility. That's what he's saying to you. Personal responsibility. Don't just wait for Pastor Joe to lay hands on you. And all of a sudden, all your problems go away. And all of a sudden, now you're fine. Now, yes, that will happen. And thank God for anointed ministers. But God is saying, I want my presence to rest on shoulders. Holy shoulders. Fasting and praying shoulders. People who take it personal. They're, they're feeling the weight of it. And God's like, that's the context that I'm going to release the best wine into. Thank you for tuning in to Prayer Storm Podcast. We hope you have enjoyed today's edition. For more information and teaching, and if you'd like to get connected, please visit www.prayerstorm.org.